Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. When you don't go to geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything. Welcome on to the Dunked On Basketball Podcast after another fantastic slate of games tonight. Of course, the big one was Golden State, who erased a 17-point deficit with about six minutes left against the Pelicans to tie the game, send it in overtime, and then eventually win and take what will no doubt be an insurmountable 3-0 lead in this series. Dan, you, of course, watched the game, as did I. Uh, any preliminary thoughts before we get into the nitty-gritty? For me, the biggest takeaway, and this is true even though the Warriors won, was how well the Pelicans played in the first three quarters. Their defense was spectacular in those three quarters. The Warriors did not play particularly well on either end of the floor, but to me, the story early on was the Pelicans, their switching, their athleticism, their effort was phenomenal. Yeah, it is, and... This could be, not every team has Anthony Davis, obviously, and this series has really been perfect for his defensive skills because he's outstanding working away from the ball, contesting shots away from the ball. So much a larger percent of his jumpers than just about any, or of his blocks than anyone else in the league occur on jump shots. He's great at contesting shots. He's just really hard to hit a jump shot over, and that's great for him. He's actually not quite as good protecting the rim, but Golden State will beat you first and foremost with threes and with jumpers, uh, and then they use that to open things up But by uh, at the rim. So by switching, it's perfect for his skills. The question is now, New Orleans is going to lose this series. Is this something that is going to be an issue for Golden State going forward, this type of defense, uh, where you know maybe teams are a little more locked in on the three-pointer and on the transition game than they were in the regular season? I think it will, but it does depend a lot on who they 
play. I don't think Memphis can really handle it the same way that, that the Pelicans have, and we don't know who they're going to be facing. Should they make the third round, we don't know who they'll be facing. I think that would be a much bigger problem against the Spurs than the Clippers just because the Clippers' perimeter talent defensively can't do what New Orleans can do, and they don't have an Anthony Davis. DeAndre Jordan is just a different defensive player. He's also incredibly overrated defensively, and we might talk about that later. But So, yeah, I, I like what our friend Ethan Sherwood-Strauss said, that the Pelicans developed somewhat of a blueprint of how to defend the Warriors. The problem is that no other team has Anthony Davis. Yeah, that's true. I, and I think and who's another team really that might be able to execute the same way? I think um, you know the Spurs could to some degree, especially if they were to go small, though really that is not an alignment that Greg Popovich has employed hardly at all, except when he was forced into desperate straits against Miami, mostly in the 2013 finals. Uh, but, you know, it's maybe something that they go to if they're still having trouble. But, uh, you know, that's, we'll, we'll, we can talk more about that once the series is over. Let's get into this unbelievable Warriors comeback. Uh, to me, I mean, really, I, you know, I went back and rewatched everything, went through possession by possession, and wanted to talk about really how New Orleans blew this lead historically and Golden State had this historic comeback. So are you identifying it as the comeback started with about five minutes to go? Because they were there was the margin was still pretty big at that point, right? Yeah, I mean, I think probably when you would look at the time when their win probability was the lowest, you would have to look at after Ryan Anderson hit a fadeaway with just under six minutes left, and at that point they were down seventeen. Uh, Warriors had the ball. Steph Curry came down, got a quick switch on Anderson, hit a two-point pull-up jumper in his face. And then they went into the under six timeout, uh, TV timeout. Um, so still you're down by 15 points and the other team has the ball with five minutes left. Um, and really, I mean, there are a couple of themes here. One was that the Warriors went back to the lineup with Draymond Green at center, which was it really worked very well for them. They hadn't deployed that at all, uh, but they ran with that pretty much the whole fourth quarter. I think they probably would have gone with it earlier in the third when they were down. That's been Kerr's staples to go with that lineup when they've been down, and they had big comebacks with that lineup, uh, most notably against the Celtics and um, when uh, they're on the road, and I think they came back from 25 down. So they finally deployed that again. They hadn't used it at all in game two after it kind of got beat down the stretch of game one. And that did great, ironically, by taking their center out, they destroyed New Orleans on the offensive glass. And, and really, ultimately, this comeback was all about superior effort, much more than it was skill. Uh, you know, they had two missed free throws. They probably missed five open threes during that period. Only were two of eight during that period the entire time. So it wasn't really about this great shooting that the Warriors have. They just out-muscled. The Pelicans, and, and to, I'll give you some stats on the comeback. During that period, uh, there were 14 possessions, so a little bit faster than normal, but there was some fouling involved as well. I mean, if you think about it, when you're down 17, pretty darn hard to come back over the space of only 14 possessions. Yep. Uh, but they did that. They outscored them 24-7. to 7. Uh, the Warriors also got seven offensive rebounds to two defensive rebounds for the Pelicans during that time period. So pretty tough to get a stop if you're only getting two defensive rebounds 
on nine missed shots if you're the Pelicans. And another way to think about that is how many first stops the Pelicans got on those possessions for the Warriors. They got they forced a miss on the first look. They just didn't they just didn't get the rebound. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. I mean the Warriors were only eight out of seventeen. Uh you would have expected that they would just be blazing hot to get to twenty four points. Twenty four points and fourteen possessions when you actually shoot under fifty percent from the field during that time period is absolutely remarkable. So uh Really, and they they managed to get 17 shots up, and then they also got another four uh, basically shooting possessions on the free throw line. So they were able to take 21 shots essentially in those 14 possessions, and those extra opportunities are what really made the game. Yeah, one stat that I, I threw out on Twitter earlier is that the Warriors had 10 offensive rebounds in just the fourth quarter, and they had only 35 games during the regular season where they had more than 10 offensive rebounds in entire games. So this this was a Warriors team that is not a particularly good offensive rebounding team. They were 21st in the league in offensive rebounding rate. And yet, in this quarter, when that was what they needed because their shots weren't falling, that's what they got. You know, one thing that's really been instructive, and and these last two nights have sort of seen the return of the offensive rebound as a strategy. It's been waning back in the 80s, pretty much, you know, league average was like 30% offensive rebounds. And then it's basically declined ever since then as teams have gotten smaller, as teams have decided, no, we want to get back and prevent transition buckets instead. But it's the offensive rebound is still an effective weapon on offense if you actually try for it. It's just that teams don't really try for it anymore. And the Warriors with Sean Livingston and Draymond Green were awesome getting them, and the Pelicans were pretty much powerless to stop them, unfortunately. And, and we'll get into the specifics, but uh, the, sad to say, Anthony Davis is a wonderful player. Uh, whether it was because he was worn down, he was worn down at the end of game two, he might have been worn down at the end of this game, uh, or just because he lacks the strength, or just, you know, wasn't quite, didn't quite have the level of concentration. I think as we go through, you, you see that it was probably a little bit more the latter, frankly. Um, he just couldn't get any defensive rebounds. He kept getting beat over and over again, and it's going to be a rough film session for him tomorrow with Coach Monty Williams as they go over that. Something else that I wanted to mention that was a something I noticed earlier in the game, and it became more notable later because of what the Warriors did, is that New Orleans had 13 offensive rebounds themselves in this game, and they only had eight second-chance points which is remarkable when one of your guys is Anthony Davis. I know at least four of those eight points came on tip dunks by Anthony Davis. And you there you can talk about the issues with Omar Asik and you can talk about the other kind of some of the other flawed players on this team, but if you get that many offensive rebounds, you have to convert that into more points. You can't shoot 3 of 12 on second chance opportunities. Well, so let's kind of run through through now some notes that I took as we Re, as I was watching the first time and then re-watching, um, it really, the, the sequence started off where uh, they threw a... Uh, actually, what, how it started off was they switched an, a pick-and-roll, the Warriors did, threw an alley-oop to Anthony Davis, bounced off the backboard, it was too high, then Curry misses a wide-open three. Cole gets an easy dunk when nobody gets back for the Warriors, and it was a 15-point game uh, then with, with five minutes left. Um, and then uh, Sean Livingston had a drive and a floater. Um, there was a horrible entry pass by 
uh, Norris Cole to AD at the elbow, and Green got a steal, got two free throws on a fast break. But still, during this time period, there were two Pelicans offensive rebounds. Uh, and that's actually right after that. And that's when I tweeted out that the Warriors just weren't trying hard enough. And at that point, they really weren't. They were been getting beaten on the effort plays all night. And that, of course, as so often happens with my very prescient tweets, caused it to change immediately. Yeah, and it, it was incredible how quickly that switch flipped. You and I both made snarky comments throughout the game about how there were bad box outs by both teams, but most notably by the Warriors. At various points, they just weren't aware of who was around them, and a Pelican would sneak in, get it, get an offensive rebound, and then they would get another possession. And then in the last four minutes of the game, it completely flipped the other way. So uh, after that, uh, Clay Thompson was able to drive and get fouled. Um, that got it down to about a 10-point game. They ran a pick-and-roll with AD. He got the pass, missed the layup over Green. Curry then missed a wide-open three. Um, AD, after missing the layup, he was standing right under the Warriors' basket, just directly next to Harrison Barnes. Barnes sprinted his butt off to get all the way down, and he got a dunk on the offensive rebound as Curry missed the three. AD was still standing at the three-point line. Uh, just totally beat him down the floor. Eight-point game at that point. Then AD gets a nice offensive rebound, tip dunk on an Evans drive. Still 10-point game with three minutes left. Pelicans looking pretty good. <clears throat> uh, at that point, the Warriors ran an elevator doors play, and uh, they got the switch of Ryan Anderson on the clay. That's how the Pelicans were defending that play quite a bit. And it's switching is not a bad idea because... With the elevator doors, the for those who don't know what that play is, a good shooter will start near the basket, run in between two guys setting a pick, and then they basically close the elevator doors before his defender can get through the pick. But the problem is that those two guys setting the pick don't really go anywhere afterwards. There's not much of another option on the play right away, so you can switch it, but then Clay was able to beat Ryan Anderson and hit a really tough shot that rimmed in. Yeah, um, that was a really hard look. I mean, he, Clay, it, as we as you said with elevator doors, if you get the quick look, it's great, but it, but if you can switch back onto it, and it was not one of those clean looks despite the, you could think of it as an offensive-defensive mismatch. It was a tough look, but it went in. Yeah, so then uh, the Warriors got another switch on the pick-and-roll with AD trying to get the sort of Dirk post-up from the top of the key on Clay. Clay deed him up really well. And then AD was called for the offensive goaltend as he tried to tip off uh, that play. Just out of curiosity, why do you think there is there a reason why there should even be offensive goaltending at this point? Well, I, I think I, you know that I'm a supporter of the FIBA rule, which would reduce it on both ends. I think that it's a little bit unfair to have it as a substantially different rule for the offense and the defense, just because you get into that weird, like you would just be opening that door a little bit unfairly, but. I, I would just be fine with opening up for both teams. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is kind of fair and, and probably the way it would work out. But it, also, if you think about it, you know, there's no real situation in which it would kind of be unfair for the offense. I mean, they're getting there. It's, it's either two points, whether it goes in one way or if it gets dunked down or tipped in when it's on the cylinder. Whereas the defense, if you're knocking it off when it's on the cylinder, that's sort of taking away two points. So to me, if if you're on offense and you can get there, 
more power to you if you just dunk it down. You're not taking away anything, any opportunity otherwise. But in any, in any event, we probably won't get hung up on that too much. One, one thing that I want to mention on that play, it's, it's hard to convey in an audio podcast, but Anthony Davis shot that ball from about the free throw line. I think he caught it about the nail is what some people call it. And yeah. he missed the shot. It went high. And he got, an, he got a goaltending offensive rebound from a free throw line shot. I can't recall that many circumstances where a player gets that, especially with nobody. You know, there were players in between. It's not like it was a wide open shot and then he just ran in there. There were a series of players there. Yeah, no, it was a pretty athletic play, uh, to be sure. So, next time down, Curry drives, gets to the right baseline, misses a floater badly long, and AD failed to box out Green. No real reason for it. They're just standing next to each other. AD never puts his body on Green, never really jumps, and Green gets in for the tip-in that rims in. Um, So then, New Orleans had a terrible offensive possession, had to shoot a 28-foot Holiday three, the Warriors switched everything. They weren't able to really get the ball inside the three-point arc at any point in the possession. And then uh, next time down, uh, after the Holiday missed, AD got stuck on Curry in transition on the right wing. He pulled out for three, missed it, as they often do over Curry. And what happened, though, was there had been a pick-and-roll. Eric Gordon switched on to Green, and he had no box out of Green. Green just went right to the offensive glass. Gordon made no real effort to even get back and uh, easy offensive board for Draymond Green. Um, Next time down, Evans did a drive to the basket that rimmed out. It's only a four-point game. Next, and uh, the Warriors came back. Another missed wide open three by Clay Thompson. I mean, they missed so many wide open threes. I have no idea how how they're able to come back. I mean, you'd think and we'll get to even more of them too. You'd think that they're, you know, there would be they could have actually won this game by a few points in regulation if some of these threes go down. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there and there were a series of possessions also where you know they were they were making that extra pass. Whereas in the in the earlier part of the game, the Pelicans were really denying the Warriors some of those looks. In this stretch, they got those and got the lead despite missing and this one and we're going to get to a couple other crazy open shots as well yeah i mean and i would say how would you assess the pelicans offense during this comeback do you think it was just like criminally terrible or not that bad and they just got unlucky it depends on the possession some of the possessions i thought were pretty good uh there was one with with tyreek that i thought was particularly like i thought they did a nice job doing it but the one with drew I recall, that from what I recall that we just talked about with the long three, I think it was a like 28-footer, that I, I didn't see any real kernels of a real look before that. And what you want to do in those circumstances is, even if you're going to wait, you still want to try to get something, because if you can get an easy look with 10 seconds to go, then you do it. But they didn't do that, and they're just like, oh, well, we're going to take the three. It kind of reminded me a little bit of certain possessions against the Spurs when the Spurs almost came back in game 82 against them. Yeah, uh, so, but I mean, they still got unlucky. I mean, on the next yeah. possession, Eric Gordon missed a wide open three. Evans had a nice drive that ribbed out. AD missed a layup. Uh, he he missed, had a good possession where he was isolated against Clay at the free throw line. You'd expect a good shot to result from that, about as good as you can hope for in that situation. So they had their chances, to be sure. I mean, I think it was just more of a, just the vagaries of fate offensively. I mean, the Warriors certainly played great defense, but it wasn't like, 
they were throwing up horrible shots at the end of the shot clock every time. They had their chances, to be sure. Agreed. So the next possession was uh, New Orleans did some great switching. Thompson was forced to throw up an extremely tough shot uh, from about 12 feet away, uh, angle right. And Draymond Green was able to push AD under the basket, potentially committed a foul. But, you know, got to remember, Draymond Green is 6'6", six six, and AD is probably 6'11". Uh, Green is a lower center of gravity, which definitely helped him. But that was that was really the only one of those offensive rebounds where AD really tried to box out and just couldn't get it done. The other times, he just didn't even make contact at all. Um, so Green missed a point-blank tip-in. Another open Living- shot. Yeah, yeah. Livingston got an offensive rebound. They rotated around. Beautiful passing to Heron Bar- Harrison Barnes. Missed a wide-open corner three. Green then had AD boxed out again and AD couldn't get to the to the other side of the rim where I mean you know normally you would think that he or the great defensive rebounders you rebound out of your area is what the coaches will call it. You don't just stand there and get the ones that come to you. You pursue them. He was unable to do that because Green had him totally boxed out. And Livingston got another offensive rebound and got fouled. Makes one out of two so they're down three at that point. Can I make one note on the Harrison Barnes miss? There were some comments on Twitter about how, oh, the, they forced the Warriors in that shot. This season, obviously it's not the biggest sample size, but on right corner threes, Harrison Barnes actually made 58.5% of them this regular season, which is ridiculous. That's not that much, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, so, I mean, yeah, they obviously, yeah, that, that's obviously not a tactic to give up a wide-open three, especially when you're up by... You're up by four at that point. I mean, yeah. you definitely don't want him to get a three. So, Livingston makes one out of two. Uh, they foul with 20 seconds left, uh, unintentionally twice. Uh, they're going for the steal, but two calls were made by Scott Foster. Uh, Holiday was fouled the second time. Ice free throws, down five with 17.4 left. At that point, uh, the Warriors run an inbounds play, inbound it to, I think it was Green near the elbow, do an exchange for Thompson and Curry, switched by New Orleans. But one thing that was good to see on this play, at least for the Warriors, was they attacked the switch. They continued running. A lot of times you'll just see that the guy is there and he's in position and you switch, and then you just sort of stop and deactivate and know that you have to go one-on-one. Curry didn't do that. He pushed off pretty significantly on holiday, got up to the top of the key, was able to do the Steph flyby, fake him in the air, and then drain a three. So that was uh, that got him within what? So that got him within two. two. Yeah. And then there was a pretty dicey inbounds to Anthony Davis, where he basically sprinted like a wide receiver towards the Golden State basket, and they inbounded it to him, but he was able to get it and get fouled. Unfortunately, he made one out of two, just in and out on about as far down as it could go, as I recall, and just wouldn't get there for him. He's their best free throw shooter. I think he takes their technical free throws. Um, Exactly who you want there. They ran the play for him, executed it, even if it was a little dangerous throwing it into their own backcourt like that. And so then they're within three, and that set up Steph's uh, final heroics, although it took him missing one three-pointer to get there. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and the other, another play that happened, we were talking about the fouls, is the first, before the Drew Holiday free throws, the first foul of the Warriors was very close to not being a foul and being a turnover by New Orleans. It kind of foreshadowed some of it, because if the, if the Warriors had gotten that turnover, obviously that changes things, too. I'm assuming yeah. you'll want to talk about the talk about Quincy Pondexter's mysterious adventure. <laughs> well, so Monty Williams said after the game that they did, in fact, instruct them to foul, but... Uh, Quincy Pondexter, to paraphrase a former New Orleans coach, didn't foul, didn't try to foul, uh, but perhaps understandably so, uh, because he got some separation from Steph Curry, and by the time he was able to get in position to foul, Steph was actually pump faking, so it was probably a wise move to lay off there, and and uh, Steph even may have been doing that, hoping that he there would be an intentional foul and he could get the free throws. Um, then Steph made another move. Pondexter still wasn't really quite right there to foul. I don't blame him for not fouling in that situation. Uh, Steph, Steph missed the shot pretty short. AD, zero box out whatsoever on Maurice Spates, who was somewhat curiously in the game. And I, I was surprised to see it then. What do you think the rationale was for putting him in? He hadn't played really at all until uh, that last possession in the fourth quarter. I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming it was for screening purposes and for rebounding purposes because so you wouldn't want Bogut in the game because there there you have a lot of a lot of stuff there, particularly if there's an offensive rebound. But I, I never would have expected Maurice Bates to pull a full Chris Bosch. Yeah, no, I mean that's it's actually pretty similar to that. You're the first person I see to make that comparison. Of course, it's not really uh, nearly as high as stakes, of course, but. Um, yeah, Spates made a great play, got it back to Curry, and I mean, some of those photos of what that play looked like, just with AD closing in on him, like two, really three Pelicans closing in on, on him in the corner, and they definitely committed a foul. Absolutely. One of one of the worst no-calls that I can remember, because it was so obvious, they they drilled him before he landed. It wasn't like he landed and they popped him. They, they did it in the air, and there's an amazing shot that the real GM account actually did. It's a vine from up top, and you see the ref right there. And they just don't make that call. And I, I'm guessing they were going to do the NBA special of they would have called it if he if he had missed the shot. But that's not the way you should call fouls, whether it's a big moment like that or not. You, If it's a foul, it's a foul. If it's not a foul, it's not a foul. Yeah, that's uh, I think that's about right. Anything else to say on, on that final play? I mean, I guess the last thing we got to point to is Coupon totally fell asleep on – I mean, he was just – completely flummoxed and no idea where Curry was. I mean, he was facing the other direction. I don't know what was going through his mind at that time, but, you know, that's the sort of thing I think that coaching you can kind of drill into guys a little bit. I was like, look, if there's going to be an offensive rebound, you need to get back and find your guy. Uh, but that's the sort of thing where, you know, that it's instinct. It's ba- it's based on instinct. That's something that you build up over Years and years as a basketball player over practices. I mean, not that NBA teams had that much time to practice, but it's the sort of thing that, you know, it, it's uh, it's hard to instruct someone in the huddle about that. The, the work on that has to be done, you know, yeah, years an and years call. before. The other thing I'll mention is that there was, it doesn't appear there was anybody close enough to Spates to foul him, which is the most obvious time, considering he even took a dribble. It wasn't a situation. I think Bosch, when he did his, he didn't. And there was plenty of opportunity if somebody had been close enough to try to get that offensive rebound to just wrap him up. And then even if he tries to go for it, there's no chance he's getting an and one there. 
Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, so then with 2.8 seconds left, the New Orleans out of timeouts. They've used all of them to advance the ball. They, they had two timeouts left. They, the previous two possessions, they had advanced the ball into the front court to help not turn it over and give themselves more space to inbound the ball. Mm-hmm. That hurt that they're out of timeouts, but I certainly it's probably a wise move to use them. You're not anticipating that you're going to have to save a timeout to go for the tying play. Evans actually got an amazing shot. Pretty much everyone, including the producers on TV, uh, was was so distracted by the shot that they forgot completely that New Orleans was out of timeouts, that they would have a possession. They cut back to it late, and after showing Seth, Seth Curry and Del Curry celebrating in the stands, they're like, oh, yeah, we still have the game here. And the Warriors were caught unawares at the beginning, too, but uh, Draymond Green and Clay Thompson were both able to contest Evans' shot, which back-rimmed very close, pretty great effort by him to even uh, get that close to it. Um, Curry talked about afterwards that he even lost track of it because he was, you know, he'd gotten mashed into the crowd into the, into the first row, and then he's he realized, oh crap, they, they don't have any timeouts, they're gonna go, and I don't think he got back into the play close enough to affect it. Well, so the overtime, Spate said afterwards that he he was pretty much sure once they tied it that they're gonna win in overtime. You know, you never put that much stock in that sort of thing. There's plenty of games like this where the team that blew the lead actually ended up winning. Uh, so or or that suffered the tying play and ended up winning. So, uh, but it, the overtime had some interesting strategy as well. The first was that Kerr actually went back to Andrew Bogut at, at center and Green at power forward. Bogut was guarding AD and Green was on Ryan Anderson. We talked about some of the problems with that in that AD was able to run pick and roll. You can't switch it. Uh, but the Warriors were able to stop the Pelicans pretty well in the overtime, uh, even with that. Uh, and I think the reason Kerr went to it initially was because Green had five fouls, and so yeah. despite the fact that playing him at center had been so useful, uh, he didn't want him to foul out early in the overtime. I was just surprised they didn't go back to it at any point. Yeah, that, I went through exactly the same pro- thought process. At first I'm like, oh, doing that, and then I remembered that Draymond had five, and so that was so it, it made a lot of sense. And then I assume Art was the next thing we're going to talk about the one of the strangest foul call interpretations I can ever recall. <laughs> uh, well, I guess there was one other thing too, and that was that Monty actually brought in Omer Ashik, who hadn't played in quite some time. Really, I guess to match up with Bogadie, it was an offense-defense situation on a free throw initially, but then he stayed with them for quite some time as the Warriors were able to get out to their lead, which ended up. Uh, prove insurmountable, although the Pelicans had their chances. They were down by one with about 30 seconds left, and they drew up a play for Eric Gordon, who ended up shooting a pretty tough fadeaway three. Not sure why you take a three in that situation. Um, with Bogut on the floor, I think you got to run uh, Tyreek Evans, uh, Anthony Davis pick and roll there, which they had success with against Bogut quite a bit. So, uh I didn't agree with that. And then the Warriors were up by three. It was a theoretically a foul situation where Monty Williams wasn't able to uh, get his team to foul. But Kerr uh, had decided that they were not going to foul, he said in the presser. And then there was that crazy call on Clay Thompson. 
Yeah, so the call on Clay was that they, they were the ball had already been inbounded, and it looked like to me like they were going to try to get the ball to Anthony Davis, and Clay fouled him. I mean, there's no argument that they fouled. The, the question is the interpretation of that. And so instead of ruling it a normal foul, which would have been two free throws because they were in the bonus at the time, the officials determined that it was a deliberate away from the play foul, which has a different rule, which means that they get one shot in the ball. And considering it was a three-point game, that completely changed the dynamic. Yeah, so this is what the rule book says to define an away-from-the-play foul. An away-from-the-play foul is illegal contact by the defense in the last two minutes of the game and last two minutes of overtime, which occurs deliberately away from the immediate area of offensive action. So what you really focus on here is deliberately. What happened was uh, Davis set a screen. He tried to roll. I think the Warriors were switching it. Clay Thompson kind of held him a little bit. But to me, deliberate means you are trying to get the referees to call a foul. That, that, that is your intent. It's an intentional foul. It's a deliberate foul. That's clearly not what Thompson was doing there. That would have been idiotic. I've never seen any team do that. I've never seen that call made. Especially against the other team's best free throw shooter. Yeah, it's, it was... Really a ridiculous call to call that deliberate in in my eyes. And, you know, maybe there's something about the rule that I don't understand. I went and looked through it as best I could to find it. But, yeah, that was that was horrible. Um, They they ended up uh, getting getting the free throw. And then it was uh, A.D. with a fake handoff and then an attempt to drive to his left against Bogut. And Bogut defended it really well. I thought He, he deserved a lot of credit. Yeah, I mean, he caught AD caught it at the left elbow. Uh, you know, they they did the fake handoff, and Bogut stayed very disciplined on that. AD lo- loves to go left. I think Bogut, to some degree, was ready for that. Uh, and this is after Green had fouled out, so Bogut was the only one to guard him. And AD loves to shoot that kind of floater with his right hand going to his left, and Bogut was right there. AD kind of bounced off him a little bit. There was definitely contact. I didn't think it was a foul. On Bogut, AD was not quite able to uh, gain the advantage and get his shoulder passed with the contact, and uh, that was the game. Yeah, the other play, I don't think, I, from what I recall, we didn't talk about it, is the Eric Gordon, that they ran a play for Eric Gordon when they were down one, and I was kind of... No, yeah, we did. That was oh, like did. that fadeaway three, yeah. Oh, that's it. right, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, that was the one, well, then I'll reemphasize it. That was the one play in overtime that really kind of jarred me a little bit, was I was kind of saying, they're like, that's, that's really what you want, because it appeared that that was what they wanted to do. A last small strategic point to when the Pelicans were in the intentional foul situation at the end of overtime, they made really no effort whatsoever to deny Steph Curry the ball. And you saw that when the Warriors were in an identical situation, they had the guy guarding the inbounder would peel off onto whoever the first option on the play was. And that was usually Clay Thompson guarding the inbounder, but he would deny the ball to the first guy. They it really would have been good for the Pelicans to do the same thing against Steph, give it to someone else. Clay's a good free throw shooter, but he's not like absolutely automatic in the clutch the way Steph is. But no effort was really made there. It was just one on one. Steph was able to get the ball pretty much unimpeded every time in those situations. And there was one that stuck in my brain uh, that they they also burned 10 seconds. They they didn't foul. Oh, yeah, they, that's right. And they didn't trap. Because, you know, I could, there are certain circumstances where you where you might go for the trap, you might go for the turnover, especially if the other team isn't expecting it. 
and then you foul if you can't get something. They didn't do anything. All they did was basically just sit there and let Clay Thompson dribble the ball up the floor and then let Clay Thompson pass the ball to Stephen Curry. And then I think it was Tyreek Evans went, oh, crap, we need to foul him. But I think it went from 24 seconds to 14. And considering how close the game was at the end, they really could have used those 10 seconds. Yeah, you know, that was after that Gordon play. And you got to have your team ready. And, you know, maybe he told him this. Uh, there's always two components to it, right? I mean, one is you tell your team in the huddle. And the other is that you actually have your team drilled to execute it. So what you got to say is, hey, this is what we're going to do if we make it. If we make it, you know, we're we're not going to foul. If you miss it, we're going to be down two. We have to foul immediately uh, or we need to trap or do something. You got to have the execution. And they basically didn't know what to do there for 10 seconds. Um, so hopefully the idea is that you are able to drill those sorts of late game situations throughout the year. So, A, you just have it in guys' heads that, hey, we're down two. We got to foul right away. And B, that they know to execute that if you tell them in the huddle beforehand. Yeah, agreed on all counts. What were any other takeaways for you? The other thing that I thought of was it's just, I'm not saying there was anything deliberate or malicious with it, but a, a bunch of people that I know with the Warriors, not with the Warriors team, but, you know, around the Warriors, said before the game, they're like, Draymond's going to get two quick fouls. It was just one of those circumstances with everything. Sure enough, two quick fouls for Draymond. It was just, it was one of those things. And he actually did a pretty good job, except for, I think it was his fourth foul was a little bit silly. I think it was on, he tried to steal the ball from Omer, which he didn't need to do off a rebound. But he did a pretty good job the rest of the game, still playing serious minutes despite guarding Anthony Davis and having plenty of foul trouble. Well, so this is a world record. I think we've gone like 30 minutes here, just talking about basically uh, six minutes of basketball. But I mean, it was really, it was really an, an amazing comeback and, I'm always so curious to see how it is that these comebacks can happen. I mean, I tweeted out when they were up 13 with five minutes left that it's basically 98% Pelicans win probability, and I felt that way. So someone who does a little bit more statistical analysis than I do for these sorts of things said it was 6% Warriors win probability at that point. But really, I think that how many comebacks can you remember uh, especially in the playoffs when teams were down by 13. I can only remember with five minutes left, I can remember like three or four ever. So, you know. And, and yeah. down five with 17 seconds left, which was, I yeah. pushed it back to almost the same unlikely status that it was in before the primary comeback. Yeah, no, you make a great point there too. I, that, that was, uh, so two really just incredible mathematical comebacks. Uh, why don't we get to some of the other ones? Not a ton to say on Celts, uh, Boston, Really, the, my takeaway, we, we've kind of discussed this, that Boston doesn't really have the horses. But the, the biggest takeaway for me on this one was the Cleveland offense in the fourth quarter, which was basically LeBron James hold the ball at the top of the key until there are five seconds left on the shot clock and try and isolate, or if they were really feeling ambitious to back down and yet and, and force a double team. Really, one of the reasons why I don't particularly enjoy the aesthetics of Cleveland is this kind of iso ball. And it's all the more galling because, at least against this Boston team, it worked just fine. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that I'll mention is Tristan Thompson is slowly becoming the king of the dagger offensive rebound, which is such a strange concept. But there were a series of times in this game and in earlier games in the series where they had that offense, LeBron typically, missed the shot, and then they just got a backbreaker there, and they got it. Sometimes they didn't even get a good second look. They just burned that much more time off the clock. 
So anything else on that game, I, I'm really, really about done with that series, frankly. I mean, Kevin Love had a nice shooting game, but didn't do all that much other than just making open threes. I guess Stevens playing Evan Turner over Isaiah Thomas was a little bit surprising, but I, it's hard for me to care that much about that considering the... Oh, actually, there is one thing, which is I always am intrigued when you have a series where there is a clear talent disparity, which there is here, and teams have a series of close games. And I, I don't know, it's just one of the, I'm not saying that there's anything bigger with it. I'm just, it's always something that I put a little check mark in in my brain when that happens. It doesn't mean that one, you know, one coach is way better or something like that. It's just something I think about. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. All right, let's move on to Chicago-Milwaukee, which was also a great game. Double OT. Biggest thing to take away from this, Derek Rose continues to look fantastic against what's a quality defensive team in Milwaukee. He was really the only bowl who had much going offensively with no Nikola Miritich. It's basically just him and Butler as guys who've been playing well offensively in this series. Uh, Pau Gasol kind of neutralized it, played a good game defensively. He's been much better in the playoffs defensively, getting out on shooters, not just letting guys um, pop from the mid-range without getting there. Um, and also on the defensive glass, he's been pretty decent. So, uh, that's encouraging for the Bulls, the way Rose has played. I mean, he just he's awesome finding shooters on the weak side. He's really been great at that. Uh, his jump passes where he'll even do – he'll throw double pump jump passes and find shooters on the weak side. And then he was able to get to the basket uh, whenever he wanted to in the overtime, even against a set defense. And uh, he was obviously the difference for the Bulls in this game. What – Assuming that we see Cavs Bulls, which everyone's assuming, what would be your base defensive assignments for Cleveland against Chicago? Well, I mean, uh, so you're talking about just Bulls starting lineups playing against each yeah, other? Yeah, I mean, because I don't think you can put Kyrie on Derrick Rose right now. Well, I think they would have to if they go to their normal starting lineup of J.R. Smith. It, it will be interesting because neither of those starting lineups, it would seem, are, are the best for guarding the other if you're going to have Gasol matching up, trying to protect the rim against Kyrie and LeBron uh, or play pick-and-roll defense against Kyrie and LeBron. And then you've got Noah trying to guard Kevin Love at the arc. That doesn't really seem like it's going to work that well. You imagine they're going to, but you imagine that's going to be the starters at least for Tibbs. Um, And then for Cleveland, they really, the only guy they have on the team other than maybe LeBron, who is probably going to need to guard Butler, who can defend Derrick Rose is Amon Shepard, and he's been coming off the bench. So if I were Cleveland, I'd probably start Shumpert. I'm matching him up with Rose's minutes as much as possible. Shumpert's always done a really nice job on Rose going back to games in 2012 before both of them tore their ACLs. Uh, side note, the day that Derek Rose and Amon Shumpert, uh, both Chicago guys, Amon Shumpert went to my high school, uh, tore their ACLs on the same day. Not my favorite NBA basketball day. Um, so, anyway, yeah, I think that would be the matchups for me. Otherwise, I guess you start with Kyrie and uh, hope for the best, uh, at least in those early minutes. The, the other takeaway for me from the parts of this game that I saw, I admit that I wasn't watching it as much as the other things, is my boy Giannis actually had a much better game. I, I thought that he was more he was more assertive, especially early on, and it was it showed me more of what he should be later on, even though. I'm terrified of the fit with him and Michael Carter-Williams long-term. Yeah, Giannis got off in the first half. I think he had 15 points with maybe about three minutes left. The Bucks had an 18-point lead in this game that they promptly blew 
right before halftime. It, most of it built when Rose was out of the game, mm-hmm. um, but Giannis was able to get out on the fast break. But the, and he was overwhelming Mike Dunleavy physically on the offensive glass, and uh, you know able to get out and transition. So the Bulls put Butler on him, and uh, that was the end of that. <laughs> yeah, and something that something that you talked about, and something I think we both agree on, is that unless Giannis's jump shot gets way better, you can't. I, I don't think you can plan on having Carter Williams and Giannis as both starters and finishers in the long term. A few other little points for people who who watch the game. Um, the Bucks were up by one, and after a nice shot by Chris Middleton, I believe, and the Bulls had no timeouts left at that point. They just had to inbound it to Rose. Rose just came down, got downhill, great crossover, went to the basket, got clobbered by three Bucks. Of course, he only made one out of two. He, it, I mean, it's almost nice to say that it, we're seeing him back so that he can be in clutch playoff games and miss some free throws again because, <laughs> yeah. because that's pretty much what he's done throughout his career. He's never really been – he's been an accurate free throw shooter most of the time, but in clutch situations, he has really struggled in his career. Many that I remember, including Game 4 of the Miami series in 2011, that you know basically could have won that, won that game and maybe made it an entirely different series uh, – there's a few other games that I can remember. There was one against the Clippers back when, before he tore his ACL where he missed time free throws at the very end. So never been a great free throw shooter. But, it, I mean, snark aside, it was just so awesome to see him. It must have felt so good for him to be in that atmosphere on the road, dominating the ball the way he used to, carrying his team to victory. I mean, just even get one more moment like that for him with all that he's been through was wonderful to see as a Chicago guy and I hope really for any NBA fan uh it would be rooting for him to some degree I I will also add that I thought it was a very if you want to call it heartwarming moment to see how well Ryan Anderson played he's another guy who's been through a lot more on the more on the personal side if you if you haven't read Chris Ballard's amazing sports illustrated piece read it it's it's not the it's not an issue that I feel we need to go through a lot on this podcast but if you want to read it you can he's been through a lot of personal stuff and physical stuff too and he had a spectacular game especially considering the context of his previous two yeah we talked about how he was he was kind of done but then he was able to just post up and score over whoever they put on him today. And those jumpers were going down for him. Um, you know, I, I don't know how sustainable that'll be in the future. He was able to be a little bit more aggressive against the smaller guys, just get another dribble in or so and make those 15-foot shots, at least initially, before he got pushed out a little more. And then he was just on fire and making everything anyway. Um, so, yeah, good good to see from him. Um, a couple other things that I took out of this uh, – this Bulls-Bucks game. Um, Tom Thibodeau did a pretty nice job um, in this game, at least. Miritich was injured, so he wasn't able to play him insufficient amount of time, at least in my personal view. Uh, but he only played Kirk Heinrich a few minutes. Uh, the Bulls got killed in those minutes, of course. That's when the Bucks built that 18-point lead. And he didn't play in the second half, right? Right, yeah. As, as far as I recall, he did not. Um so Tibbs went to Tony Snell a lot, and Snell, that was a very effective defensive lineup with Snell on Snell and Butler able to guard Middleton and Giannis down the end, neither of whom was able to get loose too much except during the comeback. Uh, Middleton had scored five points, and I think he scored eight points in like the last two minutes to tie up the game. The Bulls had been up by eight, I think, you know, with two minutes left or so. And 
But it, that was good to see that Snell got some time uh, as a defender. They were able to, and then he was able to rotate in uh, Gasol, Noah, and Taj Gibson pretty well, keep those guys fresh. They all played relatively well, um, other than Noah on offense, who's just looks like he might be about done. I think someone just like cut his hands off and replaced them with like some other guy's hands because he can't hit a shot. That's the Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe they like perform some like Frankenstein S experiment. Future, uh, the Futurama hand switch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh I mean Noah can't hit a jumper, he can't hit a free throw, he can't like even turn the ball over and dunk anymore with one hand. Uh his like drive one foot drives off that he used to be able to make uh from the top of the key just like he gets them blocked. He, they just carry him off the backboard. It's just ugly for him. So it's gonna be Something to monitor going forward, and we already have been monitoring it. It, it doesn't seem like it's going to get any better, unfortunately. You remember early in the afternoon when we were talking about how we were going to talk about awards today? <laughs> yeah, let's uh, let's do that tomorrow or something. Uh, we may see. Uh, I guess we're not recording tomorrow. This is Thursday night, so uh, maybe on Sunday. But then we'll have a lot of action to talk about. You know, what? awards are dumb. We'll we'll get to it some other time. Awards are dumb. Yeah, I mean, I I was just I went on a little bit of a tirade today on Warriors World about. DeAndre Jordan's consideration and people choosing him number one for defensive player of the year. And if you want to read it, you can read it at warriorsworld.net. It's, it's angsty. That's what it is. <laughs> well, as a child of the nineties, I guess that makes sense. Um, so, all right, let's, uh, let's call it quits. We definitely want to get to the awards at some point, uh, maybe on a slower day. We'll have um, yeah, we definitely will. Cause I, I do have some thoughts on this and like what the criteria should be, but, that's a little bit more, a uh, little bit more macro than we should be talking about when we have all these awesome playoff games to discuss. So, until next time, uh, we'll see you guys Sunday night and uh, be able to wrap up uh, all of these sweeps. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like, breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy. Without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. 